Well, I normally start out by telling you that the four questions are both on the bulletin insert as well as the sermon outline, but there's no sermon outline today. I apologize for that. I just didn't have time to create one. So, I will still address the four questions, but for those of you who are interested in hearing the answers, they won't be till near the end of the message, but I will call out each question as I give you the answer. But before we start our survey into the book of Exodus, let's do a quick review of last week's message. Last week, we picked up our survey of the book of Genesis in chapter 45, and we made it all the way through, or at least into, chapter 49, where Jacob, at the end of his life, prophesied about each of his 12 sons. In chapter 45, Joseph revealed his identity to his 12 brothers and told them all that had happened to him, and how there were five years of famine yet to come, and why they needed to go back and bring their father and all of their children and everything they owned down to Egypt, or they would certainly perish in the famine. Then in chapter 46, Israel is convinced that Joseph is still alive, and so he begins his journey to Egypt, where he would spend his final days on earth. In chapter 47, the Egyptians sold everything that they had for food, including their animals or land, and eventually themselves. But we're told that Israel settled in the land of Goshen, and in verse 27 we read, or we read, they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. They didn't become slaves to Pharaoh like the Egyptians did. Then in chapter 48, Jacob is about to die, and so Joseph brings his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, to Jacob for his paternal blessing. In chapter 49, Jacob prophesied about what would become of his 12 sons, what would happen to them in days to come. If you recall, some of the prophecies were very short indeed. For Benjamin, Naphtali, Asher, Gad, Zebulun, their futures were all described in only a single verse. The glimpse into the futures of Reuben, Issachar, and Dan were only two verses each. Simeon and Levi only got three verses between the two of them. The longest prophecies are given to Joseph and Judah, with each one being five verses long. But none of Jacob's prophecies mention the prediction that God gave to their great-grandfather Abraham when the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. 400 years of afflicted servitude before God, before God would bring the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob back to, the inherit, to inherit the promised land. <clears throat> However, the prophecies about Simeon and Levi were exclusively about their anger, wrath, and violence, of which the only example we have in Scripture is their slaughter of the Hivite men, which they did in retaliation for the unacceptable treatment of their sister Dinah by the son of Hamor. And if you recall, I propose that that slaughter of the Hivite men might have been the primary cause of the 400 years of affliction in Egypt. 
In support of that proposition, I reminded you of how virtually every effect is caused by multiple causes at different levels of causality. And the primary example I gave was Jesus' healing of the man who was born blind, which is recorded in John chapter 9. When Jesus' disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned that this man or his parents that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. I reminded you that there would be no illness, affliction, or death if sin had not come into the world. And so, on the lowest level of causation, it could be said that every event in human history, especially illness, affliction, and death, has been caused by sin, whether directly or indirectly. However, since God has decreed all things and has created everything for his glory, the glory of God is the highest level cause, the meta-cause, if you will, that caused all things to be. I gave you the definition of a meta-cause as the primary cause of all other causes. Secondary, tertiary, quaternary, and quinary the sovereign, efficacious will of God by which he decreed everything into existence and by which his eternal power and divine nature are clearly demonstrated. And so on the lowest level of causation, all events in human history, since Adam committed cosmic treason, all events in human history are to one extent or another caused as a result of that first act of human rebellion. They're caused by sin. However, on the highest level of causation, all events in human history occurred to demonstrate the glory of God, that the works of God might be displayed. In many cases, the overarching meta-cause often greatly overshadows the importance of the lower causes, rendering them relatively insignificant. So when Jesus answered his, his disciples the way he did in John 9, 3, he was exercising his divine prerogative in declaring that the meta-cause, that the works of God might be displayed in him, was the reason, the primary overarching reason, that the man had been born blind. I also explained how Jesus' disciples made two errors in their reasoning. The first, because they assumed that it had to be a simple, single, direct cause and effect relationship between the sin of the man or his parents and his congenital blindness. This could be called an error of oversimplification. Their second error was that they limited the causes to only two options, A or B. This logical error is called the fallacy of the false dilemma. Assuming that there are only two possible causes for a particular effect or event, when there may be other singular causes or multiple causes for that effect or event. They failed to consider that there might be many complexly interrelated factors that resulted in the man being born blind. All things that God decreed demonstrate his eternal power and divine nature. Additionally, everything that God created inevitably has several purposes, and so was created for a variety of reasons, all of them known to God, and, but only some of them have been revealed to us. 
For instance, we understand how God could chasten the children of Israel in Egypt for 400 years and then use their deliverance from Egypt by Moses as a foreshadowing of what Christ's salvific work would look like, while additionally demonstrating his almighty power in taking down the world's strongest emperor at that time, the Pharaoh of Egypt. Well, in looking at the 400 years so extensively last week, I got a bit ahead of our story because we actually didn't finish our survey of the book of Genesis. The rest of chapter 49 deals with the instructions Jacob gave to his sons to bury him in a cave in the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre where Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah and Leah were buried. At 147 years of age, after having, having given his sons those instructions, we read, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last. Chapter 50 opens with the description of how immediately after his father's death, Joseph fell upon Jacob's dead body, crying and kissing him. Then the Egyptians embalmed Jacob, which was followed by 70 days of mourning, and then the funeral procession out of Egypt to Canaan, to bury Jacob in Machpelah as he had requested. Now the saddest part of this story occurs right here in chapter 50, where in verse 15 we read, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil we did to him. Well, the one thing that we can say about the sons of Jacob, with complete confidence, would be the old adage, like father, like son. Like their father Jacob, who did not trust in God's promise to bless his descendants and make them into a great nation, at least not until after Joseph had moved him down to Egypt. Like their father, the ten older brothers of Joseph still have not yet trusted in God's covenantal care of them. Even after living in Egypt for 10 years, as well as having just received their father's blessing to them. And so Joseph responded in verse, verses 19 through 21 of Genesis chapter 50. Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? This is a rhetorical question, by the way. A clear no is implied. No, I am not in the place of God. Unlike Simeon and Levi, who chose to stand in the place of God to judge the Hivites and take vengeance upon an entire clan for one young man's transgression. Resuming Genesis 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he, Joseph, comforted them and spoke kindly to them. <clears throat> These guys exhibit all the symptoms of insecure, self-obsessed children who are terrified by the dreadful prospect that they might finally get what they deserve for a transgression that they committed 25 years before, but that they cannot forgive themselves for. So they're certain that Joseph couldn't have possibly actually forgiven them either. 
He must just have been waiting for Pop to die so that he can finally make us pay for what we did to him. They obviously think this way about Joseph because it is actually how they are themselves. They are bitter, unforgiving grudge holders who naturally project their malevolence on Joseph because they can't imagine him thinking and feeling any other way. So just like their father, who knew that his father Isaac favored his brother Esau over him and feared that his brother must still want to kill him for stealing his birthright, the ten older brothers feared that Joseph must only want to make them suffer the way that they made him suffer because they've never known genuine love, authentic acceptance, and true forgiveness. And that was because Jacob, their father, was such a poor father. And we see that even as grown men, they still bear the scars of their dysfunctional upbringing. And if they are not transformed by grace, those same dysfunctional behaviors and scars will be perpetrated upon and passed on to their children and their grandchildren and many generations to come thereafter. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, one of the petitions in the second half of that prayer is, forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. For those who truly know real forgiveness, because they have been forgiven by God for all of their sins against him, the, immense, the immensity of their relief is only matched by the magnitude of their gratitude. And the ten older brothers of Joseph didn't appear to have either. Near the end of one of his Ligonier conference presentations, J. Ligon Duncan paraphrased a quote from Karl Barth, the Swiss Calvinist theologian. And when I heard the statement, it struck me as truly profound, even though it seemed so obvious after I heard it, that I wondered how it was that I'd never thought of it myself. Here's the statement. Gratitude ought to follow grace as sure as thunder follows lightning. Gratitude ought to follow grace as surely as thunder follows lightning. At this point in the story, it is clear that the sons of Jacob still need to experience the grace of God so that they can really understand how it is that Joseph could forgive them for their heartless act of treachery, for selling him like a piece of cheap merchandise to the Ishmaelite caravan. For as long as they fail to know the grace and forgiveness of God, they will live fearful lives of suspicion, mistrust, and the inability for, to forgive anyone who does them any wrong. Lastly, the last five verses of Genesis 50 tell us that even though Joseph lived to 110 years old, some of his brothers outlived him. For in verses 24 and 25 of Genesis 50, we read, And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land, to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. The title of today's message is In God's Time. 
One of the things that we notice about God, especially in the book of Genesis, is this fact. God is not in a hurry. He waited for over 1,600 years before he judged the inhabitants of the earth and destroyed them by the great flood. God again waited until the 10th descendant after Noah, Abram, before starting to develop the personal relationship with the lineage from which Christ, the only Son of God, the Son that he loves, would be incarnated. Could it be that God unfolds his story in this slow, unhurried fashion as a way of showing us his eternality? By waiting so long in these first two cases, he waited ten generations each. By waiting so long between episodes of actively intervening in the lives of us humans, God showed us, he demonstrated the fact that he is eternal that he exists outside of time. Likewise, in the life of Abraham, God called Abraham when he was 75 years old, and Isaac wasn't born until Abraham was 100. God made Abraham wait 25 years before he gave him the son of promise. Why? Well, again, God is not in a hurry. And it is going to be a long time before God intervenes in his story again, before he starts writing the first chapter of the next book of the greatest story ever told. It is also very likely that God was also showing us something about the magnitude and seriousness of our depravity. Human sinfulness needed something much stronger than any quick fix could ever provide. But we'll touch on that more later. Fortunately, fortunately, we don't need to wait 400 years to find out what happened next. For in Exodus chapter 1, we read, as though 400 years had passed like the blinking of an eye. We read another list of the names of all the sons of Israel who migrated down into Egypt because of the famine that forced them to flee there for their survival. However, we are also told that after all of Jacob's sons had died, that their descendants were fruitful and multiplied so greatly that, quote, the land was filled with them. If you recall, we also read in Genesis chapter 47, verse 27, thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it, and they were fruitful and multiplied greatly. Now, there is a very common social political problem called class envy. Class envy occurs when people in one social, economic, and perhaps ethnic class envy those of a higher social, economic, ethnic class. And class envy has been greatly leveraged, exploited, and exacerbated by Marxist economic theories, which insist that the violent overthrow of the relatively well-to-do middle class by the impoverished lower class is the only solution that can correct the perceived equity imbalance between those two classes of people. There just isn't any other way to achieve a balance of equity, according to Marx. In other words, the only way to correct the imbalance is to steal from the rich and give to the poor. Oh, wait, we, we call that redistribution of wealth, not stealing. 
Well, since the Israelites had become so numerous and wealthy in the land of Goshen, and the Egyptians had become enslaved to Pharaoh just to survive the seven years of famine, and since Joseph, one of the Israelites, had been responsible for enslaving them to Pharaoh from their perspective, there we see all of the necessary ingredients for a perfect storm of envy starting to brew. Then in Exodus chapter 1, starting in verse 8, we read through verse 10. Exodus 1, 8 through 10. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Were they prisoners in the land? I don't think so. But Pharaoh seems to think so. It is only cowardly, conniving, evil men, men who don't have the legitimate powers to do things righteously, or men who have devious, wicked plans that could never be successfully implemented out in the light of day. It is only those kind of men who use deceptive, manipulative ploys such as class envy to fan the smoldering embers of jealousy into roaring flames of animosity towards those whom they envy. In addition, it is that kind of despicable despot who mobilizes the majority into supporting his malevolent schemes and then actually helping him carry out his horrific pillaging plans, plans to take from those who have in order to enrich the have-nots all in the name of social justice, equity redistribution based on a twisted concept of fairness whose roots of envy go all the way down into the pit of Sheol. This is who this new king of Egypt is. He's an uneducated man who doesn't know the history of his own nation, a man who did not know Joseph, who didn't know that Joseph kept Egypt from perishing in a famine that would have wiped out the entire nation. That is the kind of coward who has to resort to class envy to amass power to his pathetic self. And what was the result? Well, let's read on in chapter 1, verses 11 through 14. Exodus 1, verses 11 through 14. Therefore... They set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They, the Israelites, built for Pharaoh store cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all of their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. In book three of Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis makes an astute observation about love and hatred. Lewis is explaining how both love and hatred 
reinforce themselves. Whichever one you practice more becomes dominant within you. If you injure someone, I'm quoting from mere Christianity now. If you injure someone you dislike, you will find yourself disliking him more. If you do him a good turn, you will find yourself disliking him less. Whenever we do good to another self, just because it is a self made like us by God in his image, and you desire its own happiness as we desire our happiness, we shall have learned to love that self a little more, or at least to dislike it a little less. A paragraph later he goes on, this same spiritual law works terribly in the opposite direction. The Germans, perhaps, at first, ill-treated the Jews because they hated them. Afterwards, they hated them much more because they had ill-treated them. The more cruel you are, the more you will hate. And the more you hate, the more cruel you will become. And so on in a vicious circle forever. We become more of what we practice. If we indulge in our carnal desires, we feed the flesh which strengthens its ability to dominate and control us. If we love God and obey his commandments, then we strengthen the new nature, which will enable us to better withstand temptations so that we don't so easily give in to their lures when they entice our inner lusts. The Egyptians envied the Israelites for several reasons. First, because they had amassed great possessions. Second, because they were healthy and strong, they were a healthy and strong people. And third, because their numbers had increased to the point that they were a potential threat militarily, or at least they were perceived that way. All three of these reasons also made the Egyptians fear them. And so they mistreated them by making them perform slave labor. But the harder the Egyptians oppressed them, the more they multiplied. Now, if you look at this problem from the point of view of the Egyptians, it definitely became a truly nightmarish situation. The more they feared and hated them, the more they mistreated them, and specifically they mistreated them in order to try to reduce their numbers and thus their potential military threat. But the more they did so, the more they multiplied. It's worse than Friday the 13th. If this new king over Egypt were an upright and just man, he might have suggested that the Israelites should be fully integrated with the Egyptian people. But, if you recall, the Egyptians were systemically racist. Since they considered sheep herding to be an abominable profession, so that option is unthinkable. Well, how about this? If the new king over Egypt suggested that it was time for the abominable sheep herders to migrate back to Canaan, where they had come from. But he would have had to know some history, something about Joseph and his family, for that choice to even be an option that he couldn't consider. So that one's off the table, too. But because he is a petty man, none, not unlike a certain Austrian paper hanger, He decides to take the coward's way out, and so he begins to persecute the children of Israel with the intention of implementing a final solution 
by forcing them to work in concentration camps so that he can get some free labor from them as he slowly grinds them back down to a non-threatening size. Brothers and sisters, there's nothing new under the sun. It is always, always, always the weak and cowardly who desire, who desire to get into positions of power so that they can lord it over and oppress the strong and courageous. It's always the weak and cowardly who desire to get into positions of power so that they can lord it over and oppress the strong and courageous. Well, God would have none of it. And so he caused their oppression to increase their numbers rather than allowing them to be worked to death. For God had foreordained a showdown between himself and the nation of Egypt. And there would be nothing, absolutely nothing, that this man or his successor, the next pharaoh of Egypt, would be able to do to avoid their inevitable date with destiny. A ten-round death match with their maker, the very one who created everything that exists, the one that kept this man's, this, this man's pathetic heart beating second by second. As a matter of fact, he became so afraid of the Israelites and so desperate to reduce their numbers that he, de he decided to deploy an additional tactic. So he spoke to the Hebrew mid midwives, and he said to them in Exodus chapter 1, verse 16, When you serve as a midwife in the, to the Hebrew women, and you see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. This new king over Egypt being the weaselly coward that he was, decided that he would get the Hebrew midwives to do his dirty work for him. So he started the first Planned Parenthood program as a means of reducing the population of the children of Israel. Again, there's nothing new under the sun. However, when this approach didn't work, he decided to enlist all the other citizens of Egypt in his new program of genocide. In verse 22, we read, Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. The more he feared and hated them, the more cruel he became towards them. And the more cruelly he mistreated them, the more he hated and feared them. He was stuck in a morally downward spiraling, positive feedback reinforced, infinite loop that he couldn't possibly escape from. The writer of the New Testament letter to the Hebrews said it best. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And this new king of Egypt was right in the palm of God's hand. Like a master chess player, God was set, setting up the board for the display of his eternal almighty power as he prepared to deliver his people from Egypt. But before we move further into the book of Exodus, we need to think a little more deeply about hatred. The Hebrew word pronounced sane is translated as hate or hated about 145 times in the Old Testament books. And its root conveys the ideal of ugliness from deformity, the notion of being horribly twisted. Sane represents a range of emotions from intense hatred to a mere setting against or being in opposition to, with the strongest sense of the word depicting the emotion of jealousy, as we saw in the hatred that Joseph, Joseph's brothers bore against him, 
because Jacob favored Joseph above all of them, since Joseph was the firstborn of Jacob's, Jacob's beloved wife, Rachel. The book of Proverbs speaks of those who hate knowledge, wisdom, discipline, and reproof, and calls them fools. It also tells us that those, that those who hate God love death. It tells us that we are to hate evil practices, such as perverted speech, the unjust gain of taking bribes, the deceitfulness of hidden agendas, and the lying tongue of the flatterer. In Matthew's gospel, in chapter 5, verses 21 through 26, that's Matthew 5, verses 21 through 26, we read the following. You have heard it said that those, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Everyone who is angry with his brother, some old manuscripts have the words without cause inserted here, will be liable to the judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. A few pages later in the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 12, verses 36 and 37, we read, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Brothers and sisters, it is easy for us to look at this new king of Egypt and wag our heads and cluck our tongues in disapproval. But we each need to examine our own hearts, to look within. Do we harbor hatred in our hearts towards anyone? If we do, that hatred will make us become horribly twisted. James tells us that the barometer of the heart is the tongue. In James chapter 3, verses 3 through 6, I'll summarize the first two verses, 3 and 4. James first gives examples of how a bit in the mouth of a horse enables the rider to guide its entire body, and how the rudder of a ship, although it is so small compared to the size of the ship, how that rudder points the ship in whatever direction the pilot wants it to go. James then goes on to declare in verses 5 and 6, how our tongues, or rather the words that come out of our mouths, reveal the thoughts and intents of our heart. Verse 5, so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. 
The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Here we find another example of the biblical doctrine of total depravity. The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. That is true because eventually, not always, but eventually, we slip up and our tongues reveal the wickedness that resides in our hearts. Do I watch my mouth like a sentry who has been tasked with guarding the pit of hell and charged with ensuring that no foul thing escapes from it? In the first chapter of James' epistle, he tells his readers in verses 19 through 21, James 1, 19 through 21, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Being slow to speak and slow to anger requires self-control. Which is why Paul tells us in Galatians that self-control is one of the fruits of the Spirit. Back to James. In chapter 4, in verse 11, James tells us, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. To judge in this sense is not the same as to discern and identify evil so that it can be avoided. Judging is the act of meeting out a sentence upon one who has been determined to be guilty, one is who is condemned. Like vengeance, judging is God's prerogative. And if we judge others, we are acting in the place of God. We are usurping his role, like Simeon and Levi did against the Hivites. If we harbor hatred in our hearts against anyone, it will eventually come out as evil speech against them. And if we are able to mistreat the ones that we hate, our hatred towards them will only deepen. And if we have enough power in the opportunity at our discretion, we might find ourselves devising and carrying out very evil schemes against them, just like the new king of Egypt did to the children of Israel. As I said earlier, the published title of today's message was In God's Time. <clears throat> but I created that title early in the development of this message when I thought that I was going to be able to make it all the way through chapter 3 as we started our survey into the book of Exodus. But I didn't. I only got to the end of chapter 1. So if I were to give this message a new title now, it might be, Are You Ruthless? Based on the, words, Ruth, the word ruthless that occurs twice, both in um, verse 13 and verse 14 of Exodus chapter 1. They ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. And in verse 14, in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Do you harbor hatred towards someone? Do you hate them so much that you would be ruthless towards them if you could get away with it? Or how about this title? 
Are you enslaved? Are you bound in slavish obedience to some secret habitual sin? Do you have an immoderate, intemperate indulgence that you would rather die than forsake? Does something that you value more than anything else ruthlessly drive you? If so, you need to be delivered from it. If you harbor hatred that is making you become ruthless, you need to be delivered from it. The first question on the notes page of your bulletin reads, what was the subject of this message? The answer, God delivers in his time. God delivers in his time. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 30 and 31 read, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The second question on the notes page of your bulletin reads, What response did the message ask of me? Answer, I must look to God alone, for only he can deliver me. I must look to God alone, for only he can deliver me. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 read, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The third question on the notes page of your bulletin reads, was a how-to given to me for me to respond appropriately? The answer, it's a bit lengthy, I'll repeat it three times. The answer is, I must thoroughly examine myself while asking God to show me my clingy, sticky, besetting sins that I need to be delivered from. I must thoroughly examine myself while asking God to show me the clingy, sticky, besetting sins that I need him to deliver me from. Lastly, the fourth question on the notes page reads, was a time frame given for how long the how-to might take to complete for this task? Well, as always, this is the hardest question to answer. However, the Holy Spirit often sets people free in the blink of an eye. So I urge each and every one of you not to procrastinate, but to be diligent in examining yourselves, to follow the Holy Spirit's guidance as he convicts you of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come, and leads you to repent from and forsake your besetting sins. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul pleads with the members of the church at Corinth, working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I have listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Let us pray. Oh God, you know what we need far better than we do. Help each of us to rightly know our true estate. 
Deliver those of us who may harbor hatred in their hearts and make us know the liberating power of your love. Show those of us who may be in bondage to besetting sins of immoderate, intemperate indulgence what hinders us from running the race freely and free us from the ruthless oppression of that servitude. Give us a hunger and thirst for your righteousness and an insatiable appetite to feast on your word that we might become more like your Son, our selfless Savior and glorious Lord. O God, prepare us for the trials and tribulations to come, that we might persevere in the faith, making our calling and election sure, and ensure us of our final destination with you, for one day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. We ask you to do all these things for Jesus' sake and for your glory. Amen.